Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is our text. Let's read it together today. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I watched the debates the other night, and I noticed that some of the candidates were just kind of like saying, whatever happened to the greatness of America? America needs to be great again. But America wants to be great without God. It's, it's unpopular to talk about God in that political format. Even though a number of the candidates are devout believers, it's not politically advantageous for them to talk about God. There's this widespread apathy in America about God, even an antagonism against God. And yet it's God that America needs. It's God who gave America whatever greatness it enjoys. And this is the problem that the people in Laodicea had. They thought because they had wealth, they thought because they had resources, that they, they thought they didn't need God. That's really what we're going to see as we study this last of the seven churches of Revelation. Laodicea had a strong economy. They had gold. They had unique black wool, and they were known for this uh, the garment industry. They also had a special eye salve that they were, they were famous for. Look in verse 14 at the name that Jesus uses to identify himself to this church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says three things. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says, I'm the amen. We say amen, it kind of means so be it. This is right, we agree. Jesus says, I am the amen of God. In other words, when God says something, and Jesus, who is God, comes along and he validates that, in a sense, by saying this is the, the expression of the truth of that thing which God has promised. That's who Jesus is. He says to the Laodiceans, whatever God promises, I fulfill those promises. He says he's the faithful and true witness. You can count on him to say the truth. This is true about Jesus. And the third thing he says is, is, is uh, it's unusual, almost untranslatable. Some versions will translate it this way. He's the originator of God's creation, or he's the ruler of God's creation. Um, our, our translation says the beginning of God's creation is inadequate to describe what it's saying. Jesus is saying to this church, look, you, you don't think you need me, but I'm the one that, that comes along and valleys as true all that God has said. I'm the one who comes along and gives you a faithful and true 
witness. I'm the one who is the origin of everything that's created. So in every one of these letters, Jesus is making some powerful claims. That would be good for us to pay attention to them in our own lives. Jesus is exclusively God. Now, so that's what he names himself. There are five things that are true about all the letters. Uh, They give the name of Jesus that he uses, then what they did right, what they did wrong, counsel that he gives them, and what he promises to those who overcome. That's kind of the basic outline here. Advance it to the next slide. This one isn't working. There's just, if you would. And so the second thing is he tells them what they did wrong. In verses 15 through 17, he says they're neither cold or hot. We tend to look at that and think, I know what he's saying here. We tend to say, God wants us to be, you know, uh, emotionally fired up. Well, that is true, but that's not what this passage is teaching about what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. And we know that because he's very specific in the next verse. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. What does that mean? Well, you see in verse 16, so then because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What does that mean? Verse 17, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What's he saying? He's saying, you aren't useful to me because, like, hot water would be useful to me and cold water would be useful to me because you aren't useful to me because you don't think you need me. So a nation that doesn't think she needs God is destined for chaos. A church that doesn't think she needs God is in for trouble. A family that thinks they can operate without God is not going to do well. A person who thinks they can operate independently of God needs to be eager in repentance. That's what he's, he's going to say. And here was Laodicea because they had wealth and because they had some things. They felt like they didn't need anybody and they felt like they didn't need God. They had a aqueduct system to deliver water because they didn't have their own source of water. And there were, there were cities nearby that are tied together frequently in Scripture, Colossae and Hierapolis. And often when a, like the letter written to Colossae includes, a, read this to the Laodiceans, they tended to be there close together and were seen as, a, as like tri-cities. Hierapolis was famous for having hot springs from people from all over the world would come to Hierapolis in order to have the medicinal qualities of the hot springs. And Colossae was well known for having cold, refreshing streams. They would have understood immediately when he said this, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're useless. They had an aqueduct system and the aqueduct would deliver water. But by the time it got there, it was so uh, it was it was nauseating to drink it. If you cooked with this water, uh, the uh, fragrance or a, a pungent odor would be released. That was that was irritating. They understood this idiom. Uh, we live in the city of Riverview. Riverview is a nice little town. Not everybody's really close to the police officers. It's a small little town. Police can get there quickly. Um, it also has a lovely park. Maybe you're aware of that. It's a ski slope, actually, a ski resort. Why are you laughing? Shelly, why are you laughing? You obviously don't live in Riverview. You're not a proud taxpayer like I am. We have a lovely ski slope in Riverview. That we also have, um, matter of fact, Bill Mushroom's not here to defend himself today, but Bill, he's from Trenton, and he, he's always complaining that the backside of, the, uh, of the, the Riverview dump is open to Trenton. And the front side is open to Riverview. Or it's not open, it's uh, closed to Riverview. If you come to Riverview uh, from time to time, you'll notice that they let off this methane gas. 
You can smell it. It's a great little town. I like living there, but sometimes it, you know, it, it stinks. Sometimes, let's be honest about it. If Jesus were to speak to Riverview and he said, you think you're something, but you stink, we would all go, oh, yeah, I get that. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, you think you're wealthy. You're not wealthy. You're poor. You think you're healthy. You're not healthy. You're sick. You think you're independent and proud. You're not. You're, you're broken and you're, and you're poor. You have this, you think you don't need me. In, in AD 60, there was a terrible, devastating earthquake that wiped out all three of these little cities that I just mentioned. And when Rome offers to help to rebuild Laodicea, they turn down Roman, the Roman aid and they say, we don't need your help. We can rebuild our own city. This is why Jesus, when he gives this unique message to the Laodiceans, say, you think you don't need anybody, but you need me and you need to repent and you need to repent of your uselessness to me. So they were proud. They were independent. Jesus says, he basically saying to this church, I want to find you useful. You should be useful to me, made you for me. We used to live in a little town in Ohio, a little countryside in Ohio, and we had a home that we leased there, and the owner of the home loved to come down and help kind of fix on the property or tinker with the tractors. Or, and his name was Mr. Morgan. He was a devout Christian guy. And you kids will remember this. Whenever Mr. Morgan came, what would he do? He would always say, I want to get a jug full of this water because the water from this well is the best tasting, the sweetest water that I have ever enjoyed. Jesus is really saying that for the church. The church should satisfy me. The church should serve me. The church should care about me. Jesus has every right to say this. And that the church in Laodicea is saying, well, we're fine without you, God. We don't really need you. We're independent. We have what we need. And that's what he's talking about here. Jesus should be able to expect from his church morality, spirituality, personal refreshment, usefulness, not arrogance, not independence. So you get to the point. What did they do right? Well, there's nothing listed that they did right. Moving to point number four. What counsel did he give them? This is found in verses 18 through 20. The city is known for gold, known for garments, known for this ISAB. And he says to them, you need to buy gold from me. You need value. Your values are wrong. This is verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold that's refined in the fire. In other words, it's valuable that you may be genuinely rich. And and white garments, they're famous for their black wool. He says, I want you to buy garments. This is indicative and symbolic of of righteousness that only Jesus can give. That you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Verse 18. And you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you can see. So he's using these things that they're proud about to say, you need me more than you think you need me. How about you? Do you live like every day with a, with a continual kind of a sensitivity or an awareness that you need the Lord? How, how, do you feel like you are righteous enough for God to accept you the way you are? Are you consciously aware that you need to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ every day? Do you feel like you kind of are an asset to God? Like he's kind of lucky to have you on his team, you, from time to time, you know, you do things for God, because after all, shouldn't you every once in a while? Or, or is it like, you can't breathe without God. You can't live without God. You can't exist without God. You can't function without God. That's what he wants from us, and that's when we operate at our best. When we have a consciousness of our total and complete and absolute dependence on God. 
And that's true about in our own righteousness. What righteousness do we have? Sometimes if we've been saved for a while, we think, I've been working on this for a while. I've kind of worked some of the vices out of my life. I've kind of explained away some of the others. So God, here I am. I'm sure you're pretty impressed with me. Never, never, not with any of us. If we weren't continually washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and credited with the righteousness that he gave to us, we'd be, we would be undone. So this is what he's saying of them. This is the counsel that he gave them by gold, genuine value, white garments, real righteousness, anoint your eyes, spiritual insight, repent with zeal. He says, be zealous and repent or be eager to repent. Now, this is just a little practical word I'll give you, pastor to, to people. And it's true of me, I'm a people too. And that is this. One of the best things that we can do to walk with the Lord and have his favor is be the kind of people who are eager to repent. He says it, be zealous and repent. Be quick to repent. Be quick to repent. Quick to say, okay, this isn't what you what pleases you. And over and over again, over and over again, as a pattern, as a system, like we walk in this. And that's what, it, that's what the Bible's talking about in 1 John, where it says walk in the light. It's like regularly, honestly admit that you don't have, for instance, these things, our values get messed up, right? He says buy gold so you can be really rich. Our values get, all of us do this. Our values get a little messed up, right? Our, our righteousness, we forget and we depend on our own righteousness instead of his. It kind of can pretty much melt your life down. Um, or our spiritual insight gets foggy. We see things around us, but not spiritual insight. Get, gets, we don't see things the way God sees. He says, these are things you need from me. And, and then he says, so as a result of that, you need to repent, which means change your mind and will and emotions totally. You need a cha- complete and total change, and you need to be eager to do that. And that's what we want to be, the kind of people who just walk in that humility that commonly, regularly, eagerly repent. Like, let me give you an example, okay? Let's just say you want to have, like, if you want to have a good nation, if you want to have a good church, or let's just say you want to have a good family, or let's just say you would want to have a good marriage. Let's talk about marriage for a while. Can we do that? That's fun to talk about, right? Marriage is one of God's best ideas, right? Um, we're, Cece and Chuck, we're like, what, 10 days away from right here on this spot, you're going to be Mrs. Pierpont. Just say, you're so kind about that. Like, and, and, and we were talking yesterday, and we were talking about how what a great idea marriage is. What a beautiful thing. But you know what? You can't be, you can't have a good marriage if you don't regularly, honestly admit when you make mistakes. Am I right? Say amen. You know that's true. Nudge your wife right now. Nudge her. Go ahead. Give her a little gentle elbow. Say, repent. You need to repent. Woman. Yeah. Now that's true with men too, right? Wait, wait, that's a regular thing. We come along and we say, sweetheart, I, you know, I should have done those dishes. I like, I washed the bathroom. And it's the first time in 25 years that I did it. So I realized every, when I was washing the bathroom, this is really hard. And you've always done this. I haven't been very thoughtful to you. And maybe that seems silly, but wouldn't you agree? Two people that live together and they continually repent, eagerly repent to each other. They would be much more likely to have a good marriage. You'd be much more likely to have a really, what a sweet church it would be. If everybody in the church was like eager to repent all the time. You want to have a successful life. You, do, you can save your money. You don't have to go to the store and buy all those success books. Save your money, 
Put it in the offering, I mean. Put it in the offering. Here's what you do. You just regularly look at the way God says your life should be and admit when it's not what it should be. And what he says is when a person sincerely repents and admits their life isn't what it should be, he will flow into you in the power of the Holy Spirit and will supernaturally enable you to live the life that he's called you to live. That's, how you, that's what he was saying to them. And then he makes this incredible offer. It's in verse 20. He says this, if you repent, behold, look at, look, pay attention. Behold, I stand at the door. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, isn't it? Don't you love this? Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This isn't in my notes or my thoughts ahead of time, but when I read that, it reminded me, listen to Psalm 2. Um, this is interesting. Psalm 2. Why the nations rage, the people plot in vain thing. Kings of the earth set themselves. Rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, set us, let, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath, distress them in deep displeasure. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. The, the psalm is saying that Jesus has every right to demand the absolute obedience and worship of all the world. And he'll have it someday. But in this passage, he's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you come and open the door, I will come in and I will dine with you. And, and you and me will have fellowship together. That's amazing. Jesus, who's the king of the universe, who has every right to do whatever he wants to do, is the perfect gentleman. The Romans in Laodicea would come and they would demand that the people would billet their soldiers. In other words, they had the, the legal right to demand. And this was a big thing in early America, right? They had the re- legal right to demand that people bring them in, their soldiers, their occupation soldiers. Imagine this. And, and they would house them and they would feed them. And the king of the universe comes and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The king of the universe comes to the people in Laodicea who are tired of having people force them to offer hospitality. And he graciously says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And this wasn't fast food. This wasn't like wolfing down a half a pizza during the halftime of the ball game. This is like the ancient Near East where when you would dine, you would have courses. And it was a very significant kind of thing. It was, a, it, was a, it was a protracted kind of thing. Jesus is saying to them, I will have this ongoing, intimate fellowship with you. Listen, he's saying this. Either, okay, if you say you're independent, and you don't need the Lord, and you're fine the way you are, then he will say, he says what? I will spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. That's what he says. However, if you will be eager to repent and acknowledge that you need me, then you're, not only will you be useful to me, but I will actually have fellowship with you. This is a great secret of life. 
You are designed to have fellowship with the Lord. And so if you repent into that, you'll continually have this ongoing fellowship with the Lord. And you want to eagerly look at areas of your life that aren't pleasing to him so you can repent into Christ. And then he ha- you have this continual you know, fellowship with the Lord. And it, and it actually, it even gets better than that because you'll notice then in the promise to overcomers, that's the fifth of the things that are in each of the letter, the promise to those who overcome, it's found in verses 21 and 22. And look what it says. To him who overcomes, this is un- unbelievable. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Now, you know, if you're like I am, you're thinking about that in literal terms. There's a throne and two people are sitting together, which is kind of weird. I don't think that's what he's saying, right? We're not like sitting on the same throne. He's saying you're sharing in my rule. Mankind, men and women, were originally designed to take dominion over the earth. And then because of the fall, that dominion was broken. But God's going to restore that. and He's going to share. It's like he's in charge. But, but one of the things that's going to give our life meaning and purpose is that we share in the rule of the earth, in the benevolent rule of the earth. Our world is so sad, sick, sin, sick, and broken right now. Don't you just grieve and long for peace in our world? Innocent people continuously are being abused and murdered all around our world. There's confusion, demonic religions, demonic confusion all around our world. Doesn't your heart just long for the Prince of Peace to come and make sense of all this? He says he's going to do that someday. You want to be on his side when that happens. And when it does, you will, you will you know, not, with, not through your own kind of ego desire to dominate other people, but in gentle service like Jesus does to the world, we will join him together in governing the whole earth in its ultimate form someday. We'll share the throne with him as he shares the throne with his father. That's an staggering promise. Or he can spit you out of his mouth. So you might want to decide. It's just as simple as this. You read the end of the book. Whose side are you going to be on when Jesus comes back? And how do you know when Jesus comes back? He, Jesus is victor. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the ruler. How many of you have used our resources that we have right now, media, and you've watched Joseph Stoll's teaching on the seven churches? Anybody? Yes, I see that hand, Pastor Lounsborough. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Yes. Anybody else? Over here, looking over here. This is a powerful tool that we have. Uh, all, all of you that are interested in it can let us know. We can give you access to it. Um, it's a little pricey, but our church owns this because of the benevolence of one of our church families. Now, you can see a lot of other stuff, but Joe Stoll told this story in this teaching that he did and you should listen to him because he's really good. Uh, he did this story in his video and a teaching that he did. He was on the Isle of Patmos and he was doing the teaching on the seven churches there. And, and some of the folks went one afternoon into the shops in order, to buy, uh, in order to buy some things in the shops. And a lady came back with a unique um, bracelet or maybe it was a necklace. And she said, this is, a, this is a necklace with Greek letters on it. And she said she asked the shop owner its significance and basically, the shop owner said, these are Greek letters that, represents, that represent Jesus Christ, the victor. The word overcomer here is the same word. It's like the word we use for Nike, right? Jesus Christ is the victor. In other words, the message of the book of Revelation is what? Two words. Jesus wins. He's the victor. Jesus wins. Somebody say, I understand Revelation. Say, Jesus wins. You understand Revelation now. So she goes and she says to them, what's the story behind this? 
And the, and the fellow said, this says, this, these letters represent Jesus' victory. This is an early monogram of the church. This is somewhat what it would look like. Joseph Stoll, in this beautiful teaching that he does, he shows his own ring. He says when, take notes, children, take notes. He says when he turns 60, which is a long time from now for me, he said when he turned 60, that his children bought him a gold ring with this insignia on it to remind him that no matter what happens in the world, Jesus is the victor. Amen? Amen? That's the clapping part right there. Let's, let's say for, to Jesus, you are the victor. Tell him, you are the victor. It's not about me, it's about him. You say the world is broken and sad and there's defeat all over the world, but Jesus is going to come back someday and he's going to rule everything in a kind and benevolent rule and we get to rule with him. Jesus is the victor. But right now, he stands at the door and he knocks and he says, can I come into your church? Can I come into your marriage? Can I come into your life? Can I come into America? Can you let me back in America? Jesus says, America, can I come back in? Would you let me back in? God's people's hearts ought to be broken to think of Jesus standing outside the door and knocking. When I was a boy, my grandmother, she had a photograph, a picture on her wall. The picture on my grandmother's wall was painted by Warner Solomon. You know who this is? You ever heard of Solomon's head of Christ? The famous picture of the Lord Jesus that everyone loves. He also painted another picture. It was on my grandmother's little humble house. As a little boy, I would stare at it for a long time. It's a picture of Solomon's depiction of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, standing and knocking at the door. I asked my grandmother to explain it to me. She said, Jesus stands at the door of your life and he knocks and he wants to come in. And all you have to do is open the door. Jesus will come in. This is a broken, sad world we live in. And the brokenness of this world makes its way into every one of our homes. Am I right? Every one of our kids' lives, every one of our grandkids' lives are going to feel the brokenness of this world. But the king of the universe, the victor, he's standing at the door all the time. He's a perfect gentleman. And he's saying, I'm standing at the door of your life. Would you let me in? You let me into that. Someone took a look at this painting one day and said to Warner Solomon, you made a mistake. <laughs> you forgot to paint a handle on the outside of the door. And Warner Solomon said, no, it wasn't a mistake. Jesus doesn't force his way into that door. You have to open the door for him. So today, maybe for some of you, the first time you open the door of your life and you say, Jesus, you're welcome to me and to my forever and of my life. And maybe you need to do it again and again that you say, oh yes, come into my life. Oh no, I wouldn't think of trying to do this without you, God. How could I ever do this without you, God? He's coming someday. I want to be on his side. He's the victor. I don't want him to say, you're of no use to me. You nauseate me. I would spit you out of my mouth. I want him to say, I will come in and I will have, I will dine with you. And, and you with me, and we will be forever close. There's a, there's a song that expresses this that I've always loved. I've loved it for years. It's a beautiful hymn. I think it would be a beautiful thing to hear you sing this. this it's a prayer song. But not just to sing it, but like to sing it out of your soul. 
like you're telling God and you really mean it. I need thee every hour. Can I ask you to stand? And Pastor Lonsworth is going to come and, and, the, and the team, they're going to come and lead us and sing this song. But let's just sing it as we're singing it to him consciously. And then, and then I'm going to come back and we'll close in prayer.